Isaiah 10. I have a very simple two subjects to deal with. What God had to say about Sennacherib and what God had to say about Hezekiah and what Hezekiah had to say about his Lord. I want to look at these two passages very quickly, much more quickly than I had intended. But I hope that you've read them, a couple of these twice now, from last Lord's Day and in preparation for today. We have looked at the life of Hezekiah from 2 Kings, Chronicles, and Isaiah. 11 chapters of the Bible, a whole 1% we've looked at already about this man. I want to take these two passages and have us grasp these lessons. We want to revel, that means get excited and rejoice, in God's sovereignty. We want to trust in His mercy. We want to take confidence over enemies. We want to learn how to pray. We want to enjoy His mockery of His enemies. We want to see that God can chasten and chasten severely. We want to see the ignorance of men while God is using them. The difference between the secret will of God and the revealed will of God. The terribleness of pride. You should never fear human government because it's only a tool in the hand of God and how prophetic language can be opened. Isaiah 10, verses 5 through 19. One verse at a time. I'll comment briefly and we'll go to the next. This is God's prophecy against Sennacherib, king of Assyria. The greatest empire in the world at that time. Oh, Assyrian, the rod of mine anger and the staff in their hand is mine indignation. This prophecy is simple because it tells us he is dealing with the Assyrian Empire. They were his rod. That empire was nothing but a tool in the hand of God to spank the nations of Israel and Judah. They took Israel and Samaria captive six years before they tried to take Judah captive. The staff in their hand... That is the military power and the military ability of the Assyrian Empire was nothing but God's indignation against Israel and Judah and other nations. Verse 6, I will send him against an hypocritical nation and against the people of my wrath will I give him a charge to take the spoil and to take the prey and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. Israel and Judah had been living hypocritically. And this is how God speaks about His people when they're living hypocritically. May this put fear in our hearts about being hypocrites. I will tread you down like the mire of the streets because you've been hypocrites. Sennacherib was only successful because God gave him a charge. And that charge that God gave him was to punish his disobedient two nations. He's angry. Because God is angry about hypocrisy. That's when we come in this house and pretend or profess that we're followers of God and we go out and we do not keep that commitment. Verse 7. Howbeit, he meaneth not so, neither doth his heart think so. But it is in his heart to destroy and cut off nations, not a few. Though God is using Sennacherib and the Assyrian Empire as simply his tool, a rod in his hand, like a pawn, Sennacherib is sinning against him 
while he's being used by thinking something entirely different in his heart. It does not matter what any leader will ever be thinking in his heart or accomplish over us because he's only God's tool. Always remember that. There is nothing to fear in civil authority. There is everything to fear in spiritual authority, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't mean so. He doesn't think he's doing the will of God, but he is doing the will of God. We understand from Deuteronomy 29.29 that God has a secret will and a revealed will. The secret will was to make this Assyrian great and to use him to punish Israel. The revealed will was for him to shut up and to humble himself and worship his creator. He broke the revealed will in his greed and pride to take many nations, but God used it for his own honor and glory and for the profit of his people. He doesn't think so, but I'm using him anyway, because it doesn't really matter what he thinks. So no matter what the background or what the professed agenda is for a leader that we might have, the Lord's in charge entirely. Verse 8, he saith, Are not my princes altogether kings? I am so great, he's so puffed up in pride, he compares his princes to be equals or superiors to the kings of the nations that he's defeating. Verse 9, Is not Kelno as Carchemish? Is not Hamath as Arpad? Is not Samaria as Damascus? These are six cities, large and small. It doesn't make any difference to me. Whatever city, state, or nation that I want, I take. There is no difference. Samaria was the capital of Israel, and he took it. Damascus was the capital of Syria, and he took it. He's bragging about his accomplishments. Verse 10, As my hand hath found the kingdoms of the idols, and whose graven images did excel them of Jerusalem and of Samaria, shall I not, as I have done unto Samaria and her idols, so do to Jerusalem and her idols. So we know exactly when the prophecy occurred. It occurred between the 8th year of Hezekiah's reign and the 14th year of his reign. Because he says, Samaria has been taken, and I'm going to do the same to Jerusalem. Because everywhere I go, they've all got better graven images and fancier looking idols than Jerusalem has. So Jerusalem's going to be a piece of cake. Now remember, this is our God speaking about him. And this is what the man thought in his heart. And our God is mocking him and his confidence that he could defeat Jerusalem because he didn't know anything about their God. Verse 12, now the Lord speaks, Wherefore it shall come to pass that when the Lord hath performed his whole work upon Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, I will punish the fruit of the stout heart of the king of Assyria and the glory of his high looks. As soon as the Lord was going to be done with Sennacherib, then it would be time for him to punish Sennacherib for getting puffed up about his military successes, which were purely by God's blessing and charge. But notice, when the Lord hath performed his whole work upon Mount Zion, did Sennacherib take all the fenced cities of Judah? There was serious punishment of Judah because there was hypocrisy in them. And brethren, let there not be hypocrisy in our lives, individually, as families, or in this church, because God will punish hypocrisy. He would rather have us cold than lukewarm. He'd rather have us hot than either cold or lukewarm. Let's be full of zeal for Him. But I want you to also notice that you better not have a stout heart. A stout heart is a big heart, fat heart, enlarged heart, 
puffed up heart. Don't think highly of yourself. The best thing you can ever do is to tell the Lord you're His babe. That you don't know anything and you don't know what you ought to do. And you want Him to help you do it. You want Him to show you His will. This man thought it was by His wisdom, His prudence, His valiance, by which He had conquered nations. And so the Lord said... I have to use him right now because I've chosen to use him. But as soon as I'm done using him, I'm going to punish him. And he goes back and tells us the words that this man was thinking in his heart. Verse 13. For he saith, by the strength of my hand, I have done it. And by my wisdom, for I am prudent. And I have removed the bounds of the people and have robbed their treasures. And I have put down the inhabitants like a valiant man. He's describing how valiant he is, how wise he is, how prudent he is, and how strong he is, all in one verse. It didn't matter what national boundaries they thought they had. It didn't matter that they had signs in the ground that you're now leaving Syria and you're entering Israel, because he changed all the boundaries. He's just boasting of his accomplishments. And the Lord is mocking him. Don't call yourself wise. If a man will be wise, according to 1 Corinthians 3, what should you become? A fool. Be a fool for Jesus' sake, and he'll make you wise. Be wise, and he'll destroy your assumed wisdom and turn you into a real fool. Here the king is continuing to boast, as the Lord puts, tells us his words. Verse 14, My hand hath found as a nest the riches of the people. And as one gathereth eggs that are left, have I gathered all the earth. And there was none that moved the wing, or opened the mouth, or peeped. This is Sennacherib describing military battles with nations as going out and picking up the legs, the eggs of a laying hen. And this laying hen just leaves the eggs behind, and I just come along and pick up the treasures of the people. She doesn't move. She doesn't open her mouth. She doesn't even peep. I just keep picking up all the treasures of the earth. This is how puffed up he is. Another thing that we want to learn, the character of our God in describing the wicked. The Lord wants you to delight in language like this. It's part of the Bible. Elijah mocked the prophets of Baal because that's the character of our God. It is ridiculous to pray to an idol that you have made out of wood or stone with your hands and you got tired while you were working on it. If you got tired making it, how soon is it going to get tired? The Lord just loves to mock it. He's mocking Sennacherib, the greatest king on the earth at this time. He thinks that he's taking all the treasures of the nations as easily as picking up the eggs of a laying hen. Here comes the Lord. Verse 15. Shall the axe boast itself against him that heweth therewith? Can an axe cut down a tree? No. An axe can't move. An axe is an inanimate piece of iron. Shall the axe boast itself against him that heweth therewith? Are you going to tell me about your wisdom, prudence, strength, and valiance when I'm the one using you? I'm hewing you. A man cuts down a tree. An axe doesn't cut down the tree. The axe is simply the tool in the hand of the man. It's the foresight of how to position the angle of the blade and have a blade sharp to cut through a tree. And the musculature behind that 
leverage of a handle to cut a tree down. Now, what are you doing boasting against me? I'm using you, you little pawn, you little axe head. Or shall the saw magnify itself against him that shaketh it? Why are you magnifying yourself to be so big and important when I'm the one shaking you back and forth? This is a handsaw. They didn't know circular saws or chainsaws. So you have to shake a saw back and forth. As if the rod should shake itself against them that lift it up. Or as if the staff should lift up itself as if it were no wood. You're just like a piece of wood. You're in my hand. I'm doing everything with you. Oh, let's stay and stop and cease and desist from ever talking about anything we've accomplished. Anything good comes out of your life, it's by the grace of God and His power and strength, His wisdom and prudence. The Lord of hosts is valiant. Verse 16, Therefore, since he was boasting this way, therefore shall the Lord, the Lord of hosts, send among his fat ones leanness. And under his glory, he shall kindle a burning like the burning of a fire. The fatness of the Assyrian Empire and the might of its army was going to get very lean. The fatness was going to be ripped away. Their large numbers, their large successes were going to be ended very quickly. And you know how. An angel of the Lord smote 185,000 of them in one night so that they were all dead corpses in the morning. And the Lord himself is going to kindle a fire to burn up his glory, the glory of his kingdom. It soon passed into the Babylonian Empire and hardly anyone knows anything about the Assyrian Empire. Verse 17, And the light of Israel shall be for a fire. The light of Israel is Jehovah himself. Shall be for a fire and his holy one for a flame, and it shall burn and devour his thorns and his briars in one day. Thorns and briars are simple to to burn up. And they go with a lot of noise, and there's nothing left. It's like burning up brush. That's what the Lord was going to do to the kingdom of Assyria. And that fire that he would light would consume the glory of his forest and of his fruitful field, both soul and body. And they shall be as when a standard bearer fainteth. Here the army and the nation of the Assyrian kingdom is compared to a forest and to trees. But the Lord's going to burn it up. And in fact, his army and his nation, his empire, is going to look like an army when a standard bearer fainteth. When you fought for the Assyrian army, you did not have a little earpiece where your generals where your captains, where your sergeants could tell you, your captains could tell you what to do next. You had to look at a standard bearer who was holding an ensign up in the air and signaling you by sight as to what you ought to do. But when the standard bearer would faint, fall down, drop the standard, no soldier knows what to do to fight an organized battle. They run, get confused, and leave the field of battle. And so it's going to look like that in the Assyrian army. What did Sennacherib do when he woke up in the morning and found 185,000 dead corpses? He ran. He tucked tail and headed back to Nineveh. Verse 19, the rest of the trees of his forest shall be few that a child may write them. His army would be small enough for a child to write the number. A large army in the field is very difficult to number. And if you break it up and give assignments, it's very hard to tell how many you've got. I have read the, the accounts of Herodotus about Xerxes' million to five million man army in Greece. 
and how they would create a pen that would hold 10,000 men touching each other, front, back, and sides. And they would crowd 10,000 men in, and a scribe would write one. Those men would be let out one gate, they'd, they'd fill it up again. Two. He now had 20,000. And he would do that a hundred times to get to a million. This wasn't going to be so hard. Tradition, and it's not scripture. Tradition says that Sennacherib made it back to Nineveh with ten soldiers. Can your child count to ten? Ever use those words? A child would be able to number his army. This is the Lord God of heaven. He mocks his enemies. You never need fear, even when an enemy is coming to do damage to us. We need to ask, instead of, what can we do to stop the enemy? We need to ask, what have we done that is bringing God's judgment? We should repent. We should examine our lives and change whatever doesn't match His Word. And trust Him. The Lord is going to take care of His people. But sometimes that love of His people includes chastening. And sometimes that chastening is severe. Like treading them down like mire in the streets. So we want to repent of our sins. That is the safest thing we can do for our nation and for our children. You are not going to change the government of this nation. No one is going to change the government of this nation except the God of heaven by political maneuvers. You can change the government of this nation by repentance and prayer. Isaiah 10. This is Sennacherib. We looked at 11 chapters. Isaiah 10 goes along with those 11 chapters that we looked at last week, so that makes 12. This is how the Lord thought of that man. The Lord used him because he has a secret will and a revealed will. You can see how the prophecy develops. It shifts back and forth from God speaking about what he's going to do to Sennacherib to the Lord putting, taking words out of the man's heart and speaking them as if he were giving a little speech. Right. And as soon as the Lord's done using a tool like that, he punishes him for not having the right motives and ambitions in doing what the Lord had purposed he was going to do. We don't know the secret will of God. You do not know what's going to come in your life tomorrow, but you do know the revealed will of God because it's written down for you to know it. Keep that word. That revealed will is taught in Deuteronomy 29, 29, and that's what we and our children are supposed to do. Turn to Isaiah 38, please. Hate pride, brethren. God hates pride. You have nothing in your life that he hasn't given you. Hate pride. Love humility. Fall down before him and worship him. You humble yourself in the, before the Lord and he'll lift you up in due time. Humble yourself under his mighty hand. Isaiah 38 contains a writing of Hezekiah when he was sick. It's, it's contained in verses 9 down through verse 20. Let me briefly encourage you and comfort you when evil things come your way. This is how Hezekiah thought about the event formulated his prayer, and was delivered. When we look at Kings, Chronicles, and earlier in Isaiah, we're not told except a one-sentence prayer. Now, this is not a prayer so much as it is all the thoughts that were tumbling around in his head when he had a terminal illness, and then the Lord delivering him. But you're going to see things in this writing of his that tell you how to pray, that tell you where to put your confidence, how you can speak to him and the Lord's great goodness. 
Very quickly, Isaiah 38, verse 9, tells us, the writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, when he had been sick and was recovered of his sickness. So we have a short little memoir of King Hezekiah about being sick and being healed. Verse 10, I said in the cutting off of my days, I shall go to the gates of the grave. I am deprived of the residue of my years. He had a boil. The boil could have been severe enough that we would call it today a carbuncle. It was a boil that was going to cost him his life. He was on his deathbed. And then the Lord came and told him that he would surely die on that deathbed. But this is how he spoke about his life. Remember, how old was he? He was 39 years old. He was only 39, so he is speaking very practically that this is not the ordinary time for a man to go. And there's nothing wrong with telling the Lord that. The Lord knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. He knows what average life expectancy we learn as we grow up and what we expect. And so the the man is saying, I said in the cutting off of my days when I knew I had a terminal illness, I shall go to the gates of the grave. I am deprived of the residue of my years. The other 31 years that I would expect to make it to the age of 70 are being taken away. He's not mistrusting the Lord. He's just talking about the agony of going early. There's nothing wrong in that kind of a prayer as long as you turn it the way he does. He prayed for the Lord to remember the good he had done for his kingdom and for his house. And the Lord had great mercy upon him. There's no harm in thinking factual things about your life. In your situation. Verse 11. I said, this is Hezekiah talking about the thoughts that he had when he was sick. I shall not see the Lord, even the Lord, in the land of the living. I shall behold man no more with the inhabitants of the world. I'm going to die here today, tomorrow. I'm going to die very soon. Now look at what he's laying on the Lord. I'm not going to see the Lord again in the land of the living. Did this man love worshiping the Lord in the land of the living? Did he do something his first day in office? Did he get all the singers and the players together? Did he love worship of the Lord? Did he put them in their prescribed rotations with the prescribed instruments and the prescribed lyrics of David and Asaph in the worship of God? Did he hold the greatest Passover that there ever was? Fourteen days long? Did he do that? Did he supply a thousand oxen and seven thousand sheep? Did he motivate his princes to supply a thousand oxen and ten thousand sheep? Did he love going to the house of the Lord? Was the first thing he did to rise up early in the morning and go rip the chains off the house of the Lord when he was a 25-year-old king? Now, if you love the worship of God, then you can pray like this. But if you don't, you can't pray like this. Verse 11, I said, I shall not see the Lord. Even the Lord in the land of the living. Now there's a God in heaven who loves men that delight in Him. Who loves men that delight to worship Him. And notice Hezekiah's words. He's referring to the fact that if I die at the age of 39, there will be 31 years that I don't get to go to the house of the Lord to worship Him. Now you just imagine what the God in heaven is thinking about a prayer like this. But I want to say again, if you don't love the worship of God, then you can't pray like this. If you love the worship of God and you get in dire straits, 
you bring those dire straits to bear on how it's going to affect your worship of God. Because there is a God that is our Father who loves worship. And He is jealous for His worship. And He wants us to love Him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Right. Enough. I must move on. Verse 12. There's... Verse 12. Mine age is departed and is removed from me as a shepherd's tent. I have cut off, I have cut off like a weaver my life. He will cut me off with pining sickness. From day even to night wilt thou make an end of me. He's describing the pitifulness of having a terminal illness. He describes it as a shepherd's tent being removed. A shepherd's tent was very light and simple to set up and to take down and carried about by a shepherd as he moved his flock of sheep from water to water and from pasture to pasture. He describes his life being cut off like a weaver. A weaver has sharp scissors or shears that can cut through cloth. My life is being cut off so quickly. It's going to end with pining sickness. I've got this terrible disease. I'm not going to get over it. From day to night, it's going to chase me under God's hand. He's describing how terrible it is to have a terrible disease. Notice, not all Christians at all times are rejoicing, I get to go to heaven. You say, well, that's comforting. Because some, if I had a terminal disease, I don't know that 24-7 I'd be excited about going to heaven. I want to remind you of something. that The Lord knows your frame and he remembers that you're dust. And this is Hezekiah just expressing from one standpoint. Now look, he's already mentioned that he's going to miss worshiping the Lord in the land of the living. But he also mentions the pining sickness that is going to take him down. Go read Job. Go read David. They did not like being in harm's way. They did not get excited about, oh, I'm I'm going to go to heaven if the Philistines get me this time and cut me off and take my wives and my children. They didn't do that. They understood that. And that if my life is taken, and Lord, please have mercy upon me, and don't let my life be taken, but if it is, I know that I shall be in his likeness when I awake. And he will redeem my body from the grave, my soul from the grave. Verse 13, I reckoned till morning. During the night it was horrible for him to think about whether he was going to make it to morning. I reckoned till morning that as a lion, so will he break all my bones. From day even to night, wilt thou make an end of me. Morning usually brings relief and a new start. But he reckoned his terminal sickness would take him away. If he made it through the night, he was going to die during the day. There was no relief, for he saw that God had purposed to slay him. Verse 14. Like a crane or a swallow, so did I chatter. I did mourn as a dove. Mine eyes fail with looking upward. Oh, Lord, I am oppressed. Undertake for me. A crane or a swallow. A crane's a loud, obnoxious noise. A swallow is a short, chirping, constant noise. He compares two very extreme sounds coming out of birds that he was just making a lot of groanings and noises in his pining sickness knowing that the Lord's hand was upon him, that it was terminal. Remember, I told you last Lord's Day, if a doctor says you have a fatal terminal illness, that's one thing. But when the Lord tells you you're not going to live, but surely die, that's a horrible thing. From a natural standpoint. And he's speaking from a natural standpoint. You'll see the spiritual standpoint come right in in the last part of verse 14. I chattered. Have you ever heard a mourning dove in the morning? I mourned as a dove. That plaintive, 
noise that they can make incessantly. That's what he was doing. I know. Some of you would look for a shotgun. I don't blame you one bit. I live in a subdivision. The Lord made all kinds of different noises. Let's chase that one for just 10 seconds. Didn't he make all kinds of noises that come out of birds? So different. And right here, Hezekiah is referring to three of them. Mine eyes fail with looking upward. Oh, Lord, I'm losing strength of faith. Mine eyes fail. This terminal illness. Do do you hear me? Do you care about me? I'm losing my strength to continue looking unto thee. So look what he says. Oh, Lord, I am oppressed. I am oppressed with this flesh that is so weighed down with dying and with my sickness. And here are the words you should always remember. Undertake for me. Undertake for me. Oh, Lord, I am oppressed. My strength is failing. Undertake for me. Do for me what I cannot do. Kings have said in Judah's history, we do not know what to do. The Lord would say, stand back and watch, and I'll fight this battle. Psalm 107 says that God will bring sailors to wit's end. Then, when they call upon the Lord, He will bring them to their desired haven. This is how you get an answer to prayer. I don't have any more strength. Though he is still looking heavenward and he's calling on the name of the Lord, I don't have any more strength. I am so weak. Oh, Lord, undertake for me. That's not very long, is it? Would you want that one recorded and played before Congress to open up one of their sessions? But the Lord hears a prayer like this. Amen. It's from the heart. I'm failing. Lord, undertake for me. Verse 15. You ask the Lord to undertake for you and that you don't have any strength left. There is strength coming to your rescue. He's going to ride upon the clouds of the wind and is like a cherub and come to your rescue. Verse 15. What shall I say? He hath both spoken unto me and himself hath done it. What shall I say? I got to, I got to the end of my strength and I said, Lord, Undertake for me. What shall I say? He walked in with Isaiah and said, You're going to live 15 more years. I then turned to the sundial of Ahaz, and the shadow went back 10 degrees. You promised me 15 years, and you moved the shadow back 15 degrees. What shall I say? I said, Undertake for me, and I got undertook in a way that I hadn't even imagined. 15 more years guaranteed, And a shadow going backward happens right in the middle of that verse. What shall I say? He hath both. He's done two things. He's given me a promise of 15 years and himself hath moved the shadow backward 10 degrees. I shall go softly all my years in the bitterness of my soul. I'm going to humble myself before this God that's given me 15 years. And I'm going to go in the bitterness of my soul remembering how terrible it was when I was in the the grip of death itself. And how he delivered me. I'm going to go delicately and tenderly. I'm going to go humbly. I'm not going to get arrogant or proud. This was his intention when the Lord came to him. But brethren, when we've got time, and when we've got success, and when we've got gifts and presents pouring in, it's easy to lose focus on our commitments like he did. But I don't want to bring that up. Because you can see his heart right here. This is his heart 
at the beginning of the 15 years, I shall go softly all my years in the bitterness of my soul. Oh, he's thankful and he's happy that he's got 15 years, but he is remembering that death clutching at him and so close to him that he is going to go softly. He's not going to be arrogant, bold, and aggressive. He's going to walk before the Lord like we all should walk before the Lord. O Lord, by these things men live, and in all these things is the life of my spirit. What are the things? There's two of them. The promises of God and the works of God. The promises of God and the performance of God. By these things men live, and in all these things is the life of my spirit. That is what is my strength. That is my foundation for life, God's promises and God's works. So wilt thou recover me and make me to live. Because remember, when the word of the Lord came from Isaiah... 15 years, the shadow goes backward, 10 degrees, in three days, you'll be better. You can pinpoint where this prayer is, what he's talking about right here. He's in the three days. In three days, I'm going to be better. This is what gives life to my spirit, God's promises and God's works. Well, he's never done anything like that for me. He's done better than that for you. Amen. Verse 17, behold, for peace... I had great bitterness. He had a peaceful reign. The Lord was with him. But then that disease came upon him and a king is camped outside his city gate with Rabshakeh, blaspheming his God and his people. But thou hast in love to my soul delivered it from the pit of corruption, for thou hast cast all my sins behind thy back. He is feeling a cleansing from the Lord by the Lord's graciousness to him that he's going to live, that it's love. This God has come in love. I have sinned. I'm not perfect. Hezekiah knew that. So it must be love. And he must have taken all my sins and thrown them behind his back. Because who has ever heard 15 guaranteed years, a shadow on a sundial, move backward 10 degrees, the specified time until you heal, and then you can go into the house of the Lord and worship. Thou hast in love to my soul delivered it from the pit of corruption. For thou hast cast all my sins behind thy back. Hezekiah knew he deserved to die. We should always know that and be willing to admit it. The Lord loves to hear that kind of humility from us, and he'll cause us to live. Verse 18, this is how you pray. For the grave cannot praise thee. Death cannot celebrate thee. They that go down in the pit cannot hope for thy truth. Lord, these are his thoughts that he wrote down so that we would know what he was thinking at a moment that he thought he was going to die, even either during the night or in the morning, and he was going to pine away his remaining hours in this terminal illness. He, it's written in the Bible and preserved for you and me to know how a man can think that pleases God. And he says, if, if you take my life, Lord, I can't praise you. I can't celebrate you. And I can't hope for thy truth. I can't be excited looking forward to hearing your truth. I can't praise you any longer or celebrate you. Now the only way that you can pray a prayer like that is if you have a life like his. Because he loved to praise him. And did he like to celebrate? When a seven day Passover feast wasn't good enough, what did he do? He extended it out to 14 days. This man loved to celebrate the goodness of God. Make that your character. Make that your life. We've had a call to worship from Psalm 81 today. 
We had a statement in Psalm 122. I was glad. And they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Let that be your character. Let that be your heart. Let that be your mindset toward the worship of God. Then you can pray like this and the Lord hears. The Lord wants a man like Hezekiah on earth. Because what worship services he led? David argued the same way on numerous occasions in the Psalms. If you want a few more years to your life when you're very sick and weak, tell the Lord, how can I praise you and worship you if you take me now? But you better have been one that used the days you did have for that end. Verse 19, here's another reason he was thinking about why he needed to live, and he told the Lord. These are his thoughts tumbling around. The living, the living, he shall praise thee as I do this day. The father to the children shall make known thy truth. You give me life, and you have given me life. I'm going to use the extension not to presume upon you, not to gather wealth. I'm going to teach your truth, and I'm going to praise you to my children. The living, the living, he shall praise thee as I do this day. The father to the children shall make known thy truth. There is a godly, noble reason for wanting to live longer. Verse 20, the Lord was ready to save me. He was ready to save me, but he hadn't saved me yet until I cried out, O Lord, undertake for me. My strength is failing. My faith is failing. Undertake for me. The Lord was ready to save me. Now that's confidence. When God says, thou shalt surely die and not live. Therefore, what's he going to do? Therefore, we will sing my songs to the stringed instruments all the days of our life in the house of the Lord. Fifteen years, Hezekiah is committing. Because of what he's done for me, I'm going to sing his praises in the house of the Lord. The last two verses are just some narrative telling you when that was issued and why. And about the figs being laid in his boil. Brethren, we have been saved from more than Hezekiah was saved from. Hezekiah was saved from a boil that was going to take his physical life. We have been saved from an eternity in the lake of fire. By the giving of his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. What should it cause us to do? It should cause us to praise Him and to celebrate Him and seek His truth and teach it to our children and want to sing His praises all the days of our lives in the house of the Lord. May the Lord bless this rapid pace through these two passages of Scripture. What the Lord thought of Sennacherib and what Hezekiah thought about being recovered. When you're at wit's end, the words are, O Lord, undertake for me.